we're going through our Lent series. If you're new, we follow the church calendar. So we, uh, we had our Advent series, uh, and then we had an Epiphany series, and now Lent. So Christ is coming, Christ is here, uh, and now life in light of Christ, right? So we, we've called this series Kingdom Established, that, um, that, the, uh, that the kingdom of Christ would be established uh, as Christ came. And so normally, um, my, my, my notes are about six pages. Six pages means 30, 35-minute sermon. Last night at 9.30, uh, I looked down, and they were about 10 pages, uh, which, means, uh, which means two things. One, there's just a lot in our text that we're not going to get to. Uh, it's one of those texts, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, that you could, uh, you could dig in and talk through for uh, hours and hours on end, and y'all don't want that uh, any more than I do. Uh, and then the second thing that means, that means that we need to get started, all right? Um, the Bible, if you don't know this, the, the Bible has quite a few controversial things to say. has quite a few uh, controversial things to say. And so I, uh, I looked up controversial statements. Uh, it landed me on EnglishClub.com, and this is the top paragraph uh, to what they, what they had to say. They said, here are um, some great controversial statements, and this was their recommendation, uh, give them to a few students. Let them dialogue. Or, uh, my favorite one, uh, or why, why don't you just socially toss them out there and see how people respond. So here's a few of their recommendations. So just toss out. Recommendation one, a woman's place is in the home. I don't think so. I'm not tossing that one out. <laughs> I'm 37 years old. I'm not doing that. And um, certainly not going to do that in the Heights, uh, and it's also not in the Bible, but that's a, a totally different sermon. Um, another one, recommendation, all property should be owned by the state. Not in Texas, all right? <laughs> Last one, punishment never has any good effect. Whoever said that is clearly not a parent. Um, so here's why I bring this up. Our, our text today that we're going to be in uh, our text that we're about to look at together is going to open with a controversial statement. Maybe, maybe, I don't think this is an overstatement. Maybe the most controversial statement in human history. And when we get to it, when I read it, when we start talking about it, uh, if you think, no way, not my God. If you just think, no way, not my God, let, let me ask you to do something. Don't, don't tune me out. Uh, don't tune this out. Don't tune the Bible out, because whether you would identify as a Christian or not, don't tune me out for two reasons. One, we, we don't take uh, statements like this lightly. We, we don't take, uh, it's, I've been a Christian for 15 years, 16 years, had to do some math there, um, and it's been a long journey to learn how to submit my life to the Bible to submit what I believe and what I think to the Bible, and I'm not done. So we, we don't take these kind of weighty, controversial statements lightly. And then the second reason is that on the back side of it, on the back side of this statement, there's going to be something beautiful. Um, that Paul's actually, in, the author of Corinthians, is going to say that this, this controversial statement is actually the root of gospel unity. That this statement that we're going to read is the root of gospel unity. Unity, but first it's going to have to do something in us. It's going to create in us our first thing, an internal controversy, and then second, the controversial solution 
And then the last thing we're going to see is a foolish unity. So our three headings, our internal controversy, the controversial solution, and a foolish unity. So 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word should be on the screen uh, if you don't have a Bible with you. It says, for the word of the cross, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So here's our controversial statement. It's that the world is divided into two categories. Two categories of people hinging on how you see the cross. Now that, that in and of itself is not necessarily controversial. What's controversial is the, label, the labels that Paul gives them here. The labels that he gives them of being saved and perishing. That Paul's, Paul's saying there's two categories of people based on how you see the cross. One is being saved, so it's eternal redemption. And one is perishing, eternal separation. So Paul's point here is that there are two groups of men and women in the world. One who are destined for life with God and one who are destined for eternity without God. And here's why this is so controversial. It's controversial because it leaves no room for religious pluralism. It leaves no room for all religions are basically the same, leading down one path to one destiny. It leaves no room for if heaven's real, heaven is for the good people. And this should create an internal controversy in all of us. All of us who look at our neighbors, who love our family members, this should create this internal twinge inside of us. It does in me. And sometimes, sometimes the Bible makes these statements that are, that are they're just, they're, they can be hard to take, but they're also hard to understand. And so it's easier for us to hide from what we can't take because it's hard to understand it. But not this time. Right. This time we can't run from it's, it's hard to understand. This time we have to come face to face with what this text is saying. Coming face to face with the fact that Paul is lumping humanity into two categories, being saved, perishing. And here's the question. Here's the question that I think um, I, I have to ask, that you have to ask, that, uh, that, that if we're on... So, Corinthians, this is 1 Corinthians 1.18. Corinthians is 16 chapters long. Why in the world would Paul start with this? Like why in the, so if you're writing a letter and you've got a direct, controversial, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a knife into this convo, are you going to start with it or are you going to build up to it in your letter? Right, you're going to build up to it. I, I'm certainly going to do that, but that's not what Paul did here. Paul dives straight in with it. So we need to ask, why? Why is this, um, this challenging, controversial statement right at the front of this letter? And the answer, I think, or a clue to the answer is in the first word. What's the first word in verse 18? That's for y'all to answer. What is it? Okay, we're doing that all over again. What's the first word in verse 18? Four. Four. We talked about it last week. Four, an explanatory word that Paul here, he's explaining his original plea in verse 10. So verse 10 says this, I, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and that there, may, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That, that in, 
In this church in Corinth, the vision had set in. There had become these different groups of people, different people who followed a different leader. And then Paul comes in, he starts addressing it. He, he acknowledges the problem. And then he starts a solution. And the solution actually began in verse 17 where it says, I didn't come to baptize, I came to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, Paul, Paul is responding to the need for unity in the church at Corinth with the gospel. And he does so with this beautiful little word play. This word play from 17 to 18. So why don't I use eloquent wisdom? Because to the perishing, it's still going to be folly. So why do I not try eloquent wisdom? Because these people who don't believe still aren't going to believe. And I, I, I want to I pause if I can. I want to apply this just for a moment to our sojourn family, to this sojourn church. Here's what we don't say around sojourn. I've never heard, I've been here eight months, nine months, you know, July, whatever that is. Uh, I've never heard anybody say, you know what I love about sojourn? We're just so eloquent. We're just eloquent words and wisdom everywhere. I, I haven't heard that yet, but let me, let me tell you what I, what I have heard. Um, I have heard, I have seen this tendency in us to embrace trying to make Christ appealing. To trying to make Christ a little bit cool, a little bit hip, a little bit trendy. And, and I would say, and so I'm, my wife and I, she's in the room, we're, we're in. And we, we're in with this family. We love this church family. We're, we're in. And if there's an area that I think we still need more repentance of, it's embracing the identity as a, as a cool church or an alternative church. That is not the banner that we wave. This sojourn family does not wave the banner of how we're different than another church. We wave the banner of the gospel of Christ and how that unites us to every other church in our city. That's the banner that we wave. And if that's not the banner that we wave we will never have the kind of unity Christ died for us to have. See, we, we cannot. If, for us to have what Paul is writing about, for us to have what Christ died for, our identity cannot be what we're not. It has to be who we are. Our identity at Sojourn is not what we're not, but who we are and who we are in Christ and how that unites us together and how that unites us to the larger body of Christ. And so you might say, man, that's not, that's not me. I got, I'm amening, but that's, you know, that really is somebody else. Let me, let me just ask maybe two diagnostic questions just to throw them out for you. Do, do you find yourself at, a, at happy hours in order to make Jesus look normal? Like to, to make yourself not look like the weirdo, do you find yourself at happy hours? And listen, I'm, I'm not pro-happy hour. I'm not anti-happy hour. I think all happy hours are overpriced and a marketing tool now. But Jesus isn't normal. Jesus isn't normal. What about with your family? Right? Your, your family who don't know the Lord. We've all got them. Do you find yourself acting differently with that family? Is it an effort to kind of make yourself not look like the weirdo thinking that will make Jesus look normal? 
If it is, I would come back to you again and say, Jesus isn't normal. And the odds are, really what you're just trying to do is make yourself not look like the weirdo. See, often, and this is not for everybody. I mean, this is going to land on some and some, man, by Lord's grace, this is not, not for you guys. But, but often, some of the things that in the church that we call missional are really just insecurity. Sometimes what we call missional is really just our own insecurity that needs to die so that we can actually become missional. All right, let's unpause and keep going. Paul's going to keep his plea for unity in verse 19. Verse 19 says, for it is written, now he's going to quote Isaiah 29, 14. Fascinating what Paul does. Quotes Isaiah 29, 14. says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning, discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. See, this, this text, this Isaiah 24, 19, it was, it was quoted often in, uh, in late Jewish writings. Late, late Jewish means, think, um, after the last book of the Bible of the Old Testament was written, uh, around 450 uh, B.C., uh, until Jesus came, that, that, that period in between there, uh, this text was quoted often there, and Paul knew this. He, he knew that this, that this text had been quoted them, and each time that it was quoted, this serious list of texts, each time that it was quoted, it was quoted being applied to a people who had been overrun with division. And usually, the community of people lacked wisdom. And the lacking of wisdom led to division. That's usually what's happening, but almost always, it was applied to people who were being overrun with division. Paul knew this, and Paul also knew why. He also knew why this text got used so often. So the context of Isaiah 29, the verse before it, the verse that leads into 29, 14, is this, 29, 13. It says, the Lord said that these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. See, Paul knew the context, and I think Paul was being a subtle pastor here. He was being a subtle pastor here, but here, here, here's what he was saying. He was saying, the root of your division is that your heart is far from me. You, you want to know where this division comes from in Corinth? It, it's from a group of people who honor me with their mouths while, they're, while their hearts are far from me. And this isn't just a Corinthian problem. This is a me problem. This is an us problem. We are no different than the Corinthian people. And so let's keep reading. Let's keep reading and ask why, where this comes from. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Right, right there, in those little statements. There's two pages of stuff that got axed last night, and it's heartbreaking to me. There's just mountains of stuff that I want to talk about right now. I'm fighting not to. Um, no, I'm going to talk about some of it. First, one little application. God might use logic to redeem some of us, but God doesn't save through logic. Right? I, I've never heard anybody say, you know what I did? Uh, I lined up all the religious systems out there, and I, I just thought all of these are illogical but one. All of them are logical, but Christianity. You know, that whole born of a virgin, God dying on a cross, rose from the dead, I just thought, that's the one that makes sense. Never heard it. Here's what happens. You're sitting in a room like this. 
You're hearing someone talk like this. And then all of a sudden there's this shift inside of you. Or you're at a, you're at a coffee shop. Probably Boomtown, a good one right over there. You're at a coffee shop and someone's talking to you about the gospel. Or you're asking, hey, tell me about God. My life is falling apart. Tell me about God. And then all of a sudden they start talking and this thing starts to settle inside your soul. This internal, this unexplainable, I can't even articulate what's happening, this thing starts to shift inside of you. This is how it happens. Listen, we, we don't find Jesus beautiful because we find him true. You find him true because you find him beautiful. You look up and all of a sudden you go from I don't really get it, I don't really want it, so I have to have it. I want him. And all of a sudden, out of that comes, he's true. He's true. Okay, back to the, the text. So for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is the first part of Paul's answer to the drifting heart. And it's kind of it's hidden. It's kind of sneaky. That word, believe, it, it's, it's literally those who are believing, to preach, to save, those who, the ones that are believing, the believing people. And Paul here, I think if we applied this to us, he's going to counter something. He's going to counter uh, the, uh, I'm saved because I had a, an emotional experience when I was 14. Right? I, he's going to counter the, um, I went to a camp and I walked down an aisle. He's going to counter the, I was sitting at dinner Someone was talking, and I just started crying, but that was years and years ago that I believed at one time, and he's going to bring it more to those who are believing. He's going to, he's going to counter. Um, and if you'll notice, in verse 18, it says, those who are being saved, present tense, not those who have been saved. Now, one of the, the things I think has to settle in us is this reality that, that salvation has a past present and future reality to it, that there's justification, sanctification, glorification. Salvation is the whole of it. So some of the reason that we have a drifting heart is because we think that we've actually been converted because we walked down an aisle 10 years ago. Or we threw up a hand and prayed a prayer. Or we had an emotional experience uh, in a living room one time. And so one of the reasons we have a drifting heart is our heart has never actually been attached to God. That, that we might have thought we believed, but we're not believing. We're not part of the present tense believing people. And what's fascinating about this little text is that, that he's writing to the church. Right? He's not writing. I would have thought if I were just reading this without any context to it, that this is probably more of a, uh, this was something that Paul did uh, maybe in, uh, Mars Hill, out in the open air somewhere. But 1 Corinthians 2, this is written to the church of God that is in Corinth. And I think some of the significance of this, the, the, the significance of our continual need to be believing in the gospel is that we never move beyond the gospel. We, we have such a tendency to think, man, what I need is more than the gospel. I, I get the gospel, but I need more than that. Right? I need a gospel plus systematics, or I need gospel plus anything. And, and Paul, in Corinthians, is a great model for this. He never moves beyond the gospel. Paul, who's richly theological, richly theological, 
1 Corinthians 1, what is he talking about here? The gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, what does he say? Keep first things first. The gospel. He, he never moves beyond the gospel. And sometimes we tend to forget that the gospel is more than an entry point. The gospel is what sustains us throughout. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. So it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who are believing, who believe. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. This is not random. Paul is being very intentional here in his, in his wording and what he's doing, that, that the Jewish national identity had become uh, the Exodus, and not, not just anything about the Exodus, but about uh, their, um, their, their power that they had over and was exercised over Egypt. See, so the Jew here needed to be seen as respectable, and, and the Greek, their national identity was, was wisdom, it was logic, it was philosophy, that the, that the Greek had a need to be seen as intellectual. And so whether Jew or Greek, what, what they wanted, what Paul was writing into, what he was speaking into, was their need, uh, their need to have their primary governing idols reinforced by God. That what the Jew and what the Greek wanted was a God who would look at their primary nationalistic idols and reinforce them. And I think most of us want God to do the same. We, we want the things, that the idols, the things that we that we take these good things that we have in life, that we make ultimate things in our life, we then try to require God to give us these things. And it's simply not how it works. And Paul would say, repent. And step one, step one is to identify who are you. Like what, what are these idols inside of you? What are the things that you need the gospel to be applied to today? Are you more of a Jew? Are you more of a Greek? Right? Are you consumed by what people think of you? Right? Is, is your perception, your image, something that you're consumed by? Do you, do you need to be the guy or the girl with all the answers? Right? Are you comfortable saying the words, I don't know? So sometimes the most Christian answer we can give is, I don't know. Are, are you, are you worried, like, do you not want your coworkers to think you're that religious weirdo that, you know, for, for me, if this were like a counseling session, which it's not, but if it were, uh, I, I, would, I would say, man, I, I really want God to be kind of a social sugar daddy. Don't know if I should have said that. Like, I, I, I want credibility. Like, I want social cred. Like, I, I want an account that God can stick credibility into. That's the governing idol that, we, that I have to repent of, and I'm guessing I'm not alone. But here's the real, like here's the real internal controversy. See, the, the, the real internal controversy is not two categories of people. That's just our launching point. The, the real internal controversy is that we want the God that we want. Right? We, we want the God that we want. We want the God that gives us what we Wants, and that's not the God of the Bible, that all of us have a little Jew, all of us have a little bit of the Greek in us that needs to be challenged, that needs to be redeemed, and that brings us to the controversial solution. Let's keep reading in verse 23. 
but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That, that Christ crucified, that, that's a contradiction in terms. It's like saying fried ice, right? Christ crucified, this Savior to them. This is a contradiction in terms that's both controversial to both Jew and the Greek, and it's both challenging to the Jew and the Greek, that to the Jew, Jesus was the ultimate scandal, right? So to the Jew, they looked at Jesus and said, this is not the God that we want. We want the God of power. I, want, I don't want this lay my life down. I want the God of power. And to the Greek, it's not just that the Greek thought God dying on a crucified Christ, Christ crucified. This, this wasn't just intellectually unlikely, to the Greek, this was intellectually implausible. I mean, it was intellectually implausible. See, the, the cross of Christ, is, it's neither logical nor respectable. So you're not going to be seen as an intellectual hero because you believe in the cross of Christ, nor are you going to have an account that God is going to dump social credibility into. It's not logical, and it's not respectable. And the Jews wanted a sign, and this was the opposite. The Greek wanted wisdom, this is the opposite. But in the cross, here's what happened. In the cross, this is why it is a solution. Because in the cross, God didn't give them what they wanted. God gave them what they needed. God didn't give them what they wanted. God gave them what they needed. And I would say the same to you, that in your life, God is not giving you what you want. He's giving you what you need. But then in verse 24, something happens to both the Jews and the Greeks. It says, but to those who are called, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But in, in the Bible, there's, there's two kinds of calling in the Bible. There's uh, proclamational calling. There's this where, where I'm saying the words of the gospel and, it, and you're, you're being called to believe or you're hearing me. And then there's an, an effectual calling, an internal calling, where these words get applied by the Spirit to your life. Where, where 1 Corinthians 2 would say these things get revealed by the Spirit. There's an effectual calling. And what happens in this effectual calling is that what you need becomes what you want. And when the gospel gets applied to you and applied to your life, all of a sudden, what you need becomes what you want. Wants. And Christ goes from functional to beautiful. And here, here's Paul's, Paul's theology of unity. If you want to know Paul's theology of unity, here it is. It's the cross. Paul's theology of unity started and finished with the cross. It, it was a cross where eternal Son of God was separated from the Father in order to unite yourself and me to the Father and to one another that we would be united to God and united to each other. Paul's theology of unity began and finished, started and ended with the cross. And this leads to, it creates a foolish unity, an absolutely foolish unity. And so here's how I want to land this plane. I want to land this plane uh, closing out, uh, applying this, taking this gospel that Paul started with, that he never left, and I want to apply it to us through the lens of Corinth, the city, and through Lent, the season. Season, this, this Lent season of focused repentance. I want to apply it through those two 
lenses. So 1 Corinthians 12. This is through the lens of Corinth first. 12, 14, and 15. It says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not... That's a lie. Backing up to verse 12. To verse 12. For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And let... let let those words settle on you for who we are. I'm going to read them again. I'll let, just let them sit. And we're not, we're not an event. We're, not a, we're a people. We're a body. For just as the one body, as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, both Jews and Greeks, slaves were free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. That, that the city of Corinth was this incredibly diverse city. It was a crossroads city where all kinds of religious um, backgrounds, all, all kinds of social backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds collided on this city of Corinth. And Paul is writing and he's speaking in and he's saying, listen, Jew or Greek, you're united in one body. Regardless of cultural background, regardless of who you are, we are one body. So a few months ago, two months ago, when we did a forum on racial reconciliation, this is why. This is why we did it. Because we believe with great conviction and great confidence that the gospel has the power to unite people. That the gospel has the power to unite people regardless of background, regardless of demographic, regardless of race. That the gospel has the power to unite people. Now listen, we, we don't have a ton of plans going forward. We don't have a lot of strategies. We, we don't have this figured out. Like how are we as this Sojourn family, Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Montrose, Sojourn Galleria, and the future other Sojourn, like, we don't have this figured out. What we have is a lot of dreams about what the gospel might do in our city and a lot of confidence in the power of the gospel to do it. That's all we have. That's what we have going forward. So why do we do racial reconciliation forum? Because we believe that the gospel does that. It's just what the gospel does. So now let's apply it through Lent. This season of focused repentance. Verse, verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. You see, here's what the gospel does. See, when, when Paul's writing in to this church divided, and he starts and he ends with the gospel, when he attacks with the gospel, here, here's why. The gospel creates humility. That's why arrogance, Christianity, ought to be oxymorons. The gospel creates humility. The gospel creates humility. That when we embrace our own weakness, when we embrace our foolishness, the gospel gets applied to the Jew and the Greek and all of us. And this humility leads to repentance. This, this humility 
leads to a people who can embrace the season where we focus on repentance. And this repentance creates unity. The kind of unity that, that looks at a text like 1 Corinthians 12 and says, absolutely, I, I am in desperate need of one another. I am in desperate need of my brothers and sisters inside my local church. The gospel creates humility. Humility leads to repentance. And a repenting church is a united church. Another, another statement I cannot overstate. If we are going to live out the kind of unity that we're praying for, that Christ died for, that Paul wants inside the church, we have to be a repenting church. A people whose repentance leads us to our need for one another. And a church marked by repentance means, means this. It means that, that sojourn's problems are my problems. So we, we have a thousand imperfections inside of our body. I've got most of them. And it means sojourn imp- sojourn's imperfections are my imperfections. That the problems with my church family aren't um, their problem over there. It's my problem over there. It's not if they would just get this turned around or get this fixed. It's, it's if we got that turned around and if we got that fixed. A repenting church is a united church. This is what covenant membership is. Earlier today, we had a, a members meeting and we, we had 14 new covenant members stand up and say, I'm in. It, it means that this is my family. It means that I'm in with these people. I'm, I'm putting both feet in and I'm saying, this is my church. These are my people and I'm in. And I know they're not perfect. I'm not perfect, but I'm in with them. If we're going to be a united church, we have to be a repenting church. One body in desperate need for one another, glued together by the gospel. And we're praying. We're praying that this is us. That, that this is who sojourn is and becomes more of. A united people, glued together by the gospel, humbled through the gospel, undivided because we are a people who repent. A people who embrace our own need for repentance. And if this is us, if this is the kind of people that sojourn might be and become. And who knows? Who knows what we might look like? Who knows what the heights might look like? Who knows what Houston might look like in 10, 20, 30 years? Who knows what it might be like for our kids, kids, kids? Let me pray.